0: About thirty years ago, uh, Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called "Not the Way It's Supposed to Be." It's a book about sin. It's a great title for a book about sin. It's a book about sin, a book about grace. and in the opening chapter of this book, he uh, sets up the theme by recounting a scene from a movie called Grand Canyon. I've never seen this movie, but this is the scene that he recounts. He tells a story of Um, uh, an attorney who's driving through the city and he gets stuck in a traffic jam. And as as we often do, he tries to figure out a way out of the traffic jam, kind of takes a a side road from where all the cars have stopped. And he ends up, uh, one thing leading to another, he ends up on kind of the other side of the tracks. He ends up in a part of town where he probably would not have chosen to end up otherwise. And he gets there and his car breaks down. And as hes he's contacting a tow truck company to come pick him up, uh, this this group of about five young guys who clearly kind of run the neighborhood they show up they kind of surround him like uh, predators attacking a prey uh, and as he's waiting, these guys are threatening you know, physical violence to him they're wanting to take his vehicle. Finally, the tow truck driver shows up and intervenes on his behalf and and As the scene unfolds, the driver takes aside kind of the leader of this young gang, and and this is what he says to him: He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can do it. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is Here. I think we all have a deep sense, we all know deep down that uh, what this tow truck driver says is true, that things are not as they ought to be. And if you haven't, if you haven't figured that out, then either you're not paying attention uh, or you're trying to ignore the things that are in front of you. Things are uh, clearly not the way they ought to be. Um, and when the scriptures speak about this, the scriptures identify the reason why things are not the way they ought to be is because of sin. That in the garden our our first parents Adam and Eve rebelled against the living God who made them, who loved them, who put them in a place of of beauty and of flourishing and called them to live in fellowship with him. They rejected his word, they were deceived by the serpent and, and disobeyed the one command that God gave them, prohibiting them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that, from that point on, sin and its effects have permeated uh, our lives. Uh, we all feel uh, the weight of sin, the effects of sin, and it's also permeated the entire cosmos. All of creation has been impacted negatively negatively by sin. Sin has damaged and corrupted us and God's good creation. It permeates every facet of life. As one writer says, sin has a thousand faces. But in the Bible, we find a, uh, an encouraging honesty that looks sin full in the face in all of its effects The prophets, the apostles, all of the writers of scriptures recognize this. They look at sin and they say, this is a problem. Uh, A problem that runs far deeper than we often recognize. A problem that impacts every area of life, every part of creation. And yet as they recognize the problem, they all speak to it in this way, reminding us God has a plan. He has a plan to deal with the problem of sin. And it's a plan They cannot even be thwarted by the pervasive and destructive character of sin. And as we come to Paul's doxology in the opening verses of Ephesians, we we hear him unfolding this plan, making reference to this plan, sharing this plan with us, and finding that this plan is centered on Jesus Christ. That the plan of God to deal with sin in us, to deal with sin in the world, all finds its climactic moment. In the work of Christ for us. Last week, Jeff highlighted the plan that involves God's gracious election, his electing love of us before the foundation of the world. And today, we look at the part of that plan that involves Christ bringing redemption through his, his blood, uh, redeeming us from sin, but also that future plan, redeeming the entire cosmos. From sin and all of its effects. Individual redemption, cosmic redemption, the connection between those two. There's a problem with us and the world, and Jesus is the place, the one in whom we find the solution. We want to look at uh, Paul's outline of this solution, the problem and the solution, uh, in two points. First, we want to look at the redemption that we have in Christ, and then secondly, we want to look at the the revelation of God's plan in Christ. So that's that's the background for the quirky or the catchy title. A lot of R and R, redemption and revelation in this passage. Let's look first at the redemption that we have in Christ. Notice verse 7. Paul says, "In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses." This word redemption, this is a word that when you when you hear this word What do you think? You probably think immediately of religious things, right? It's a very religious-sounding word just because of the influence of the Bible and Christianity in our world. We hear redemption, and probably most of us immediately think of Jesus. You immediately think of the cross. You think of Jesus shedding his blood, that that's redemption. But in Paul's day, this was a word for the marketplace. Uh, The word redemption in Paul's day, so people reading this in the first century, Uh, Their usage of this word, their common understanding of this word, uh, would have involved somebody paying a price for something. In particular, it was most often used for the paying of a price, a ransom price, to bring somebody out from slavery. Okay? So redemption here kind of has this marketplace connotation. There's a price paid. Something is given to deliver, to free, to rescue somebody from a state of slavery. And in the Bible in particular, so that's kind of the cultural context of the word, but in the Bible, the price that's paid for redemption uh, is very often a substitute. So, for example, throughout the Old Testament, how does God redeem his people from their sins? How does he rescue them from slavery to sin or slavery in Egypt? He does it through a substitute. You think about the Exodus, which is kind of the major way God redeems his people in the Old Covenant. How does God bring his people out from Egypt? He brings ten plagues on Egypt, just hammering down Egypt and their false gods, showing that he's the true God. And he gets to the tenth plague, and he says, I'm going to uh, take the life of the firstborn son, in all of Egypt, so every family's firstborn son, all, all the firstborn cattle even. But in Israel, he says, go get a lamb, keep the lamb with you for a couple of weeks, and at the end of 14 days, take this lamb that's been in your home with your kids, they've been loving on it, hugging it, take this lamb and kill it. Spill its blood and put its blood on the door outside of your home. And when the angel of death passes through Egypt to take the life of the firstborn son in each home there. When he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over your home, and you will be spared. Why? What is it that divides Israel from Egypt in that moment? What is it that allows Israel to be redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and yet Egypt uh, receives this plague, the death of the firstborn son? It's the blood of a substitute is the blood of a lamb given in place of the firstborn son. Paul says we have redemption in Christ through his blood. And when he says that, what he means is we have a substitute. One who has stood in our place, who has paid the price to ransom us from sin, from its penalty and from its power. We have redemption. We've been bought with a price, and we belong now to the living God, both by virtue of creation and now the purchase price of redemption, which Paul describes as the blood of Jesus, which is a way of describing his whole life given for us. Paul develops this uh, a little bit more later in the letter, so we won't, we won't sit here for too, long, too much longer. Um, but Paul's, when Paul talks about our redemption, there's two things in mind that we've been redeemed From as a a result of the cross of Jesus. The first is that we've been redeemed. We've been purchased out of slavery to sin's penalty. Jesus bore it in our place. He took the wrath of God for us. Justice has been satisfied. Our condemnation went to Jesus so that we might receive righteousness from him. So we've been freed from sin's penalty, delivered from it. We've also been freed from sin's power. Uh, that he has put sin to death by his death and resurrection so that we no longer live under the dominating power of sin, but have been brought into grace through Jesus and been given his Holy Spirit so that we are not under the authority of sin. Though it dwells within us, though we still wrestle with it and struggle with it, it does not have dominion over us. So he's redeemed us from sin's penalty and power through his cross. Paul sums it up, Uh, by way of kind of a synonym uh, for redemption. He calls in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, which He identifies as the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins. Think about it this way. The forgiveness of our sins cost something. He redeemed us. He paid the price. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute, as the one who came for this purpose to redeem us, forgiveness cost us something. You know, there's lots of talk in the, in the news recently about student debt, student debt forgiveness, and whether, you, whether you're in favor of that or, that or not is kind of beside the point. And, and maybe you're in favor of it or not, depending on whether you have student debt or not. Uh, but there's a lot of kind of arguing about these policies of forgiving student debt. And you'll often hear uh, people complaining about it or arguing against it who are in opposition to this kind of policy. And they'll say, it's not really forgiveness because somebody else is paying for it and they're just transferring the cost from one person to another, which in a certain sense makes, makes a good point. At the same time, it completely misses the point of what forgiveness is. We think too lightly of forgiveness. We, we kind of think that forgiveness just means poof, and it's gone, and there's no cost to it. But in the Bible, forgiveness always carries a cost. Forgiveness is transference. So you can call a student debt forgiveness. You have permission to do that. It's not a misnomer. In the Bible, forgiveness always incurs a cost. Somebody always takes the hit for sin. Okay? If, if you think about your own relationships with other people, if you sin against somebody, and then you come and you acknowledge it, and you, you humbly ask for forgiveness they're taking the hit for your sin when they say i forgive you when they absorb the cost of your words of your actions or whatever the case may be they're taking the hit for your sin and as christians we recognize we're able to do that because jesus has taken the ultimate hit for us jesus has carried the ultimate cost of our sin through this redemption his payment of the penalty the price of our redemption, his blood. We call this substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. He bears the penalty as our substitute and thereby atoning for our sins, covering our sins through the spilling of his blood and through his righteousness. We can be forgiven. Paul describes this forgiveness, again, look at verse 8, or the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. He describes it with, with pretty, um, uh, I don't know how you, how you describe this language. It's big language. It's, it's expressive language. The riches of grace that he lavished on us. Uh, verse, the end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8. God is not stingy with his grace towards his people. He doesn't hold back from us. You know, he's not counting pennies when he forgives our sins. And and probably if you're like I am, we often forget that. We we forget how rich God's grace is. But Paul, Paul didn't forget it. Paul, I mean, Paul makes up words. I hope you know this in the New Testament. I mean, he doesn't make up nonsense words, but he uses words that people don't normally use in an attempt to describe the full overflowing wealth and abundance of God's grace to us in Jesus. He just kind of grabs words and squeezes them together to communicate to us that this is an overflowing, abundant, above and beyond, never stopping flow of grace from God to you through the work of Jesus in our place. He's not stingy. He is generous with his redemption. He is generous in his love. He is love. God is love, which means there is no bottom to his resources of love and grace for his people. He lavishes it on us according to the riches of his grace. My question is, why don't we think of grace this way? Why don't we think more often of God in this way, of being generous, lavish even, prodigal even, with his grace towards us. Perhaps you think your sin is too much for him, that there's so much of your sin that there can't be enough grace to cover it. Chuck Colson tells a story of a man named Alan Speer, who was part of the Nazi regime in Germany during World War II, and he was kind of one of the, the masterminds behind um, much of the cruel kind of scientific medical testing that the Nazis carried out on their victims. He was one of, I think maybe, I think he was the only one who confessed and admitted his guilt when brought to trial in Nuremberg for kind of their war crimes. He was the only one who said, this was wrong. I should not have done it. And then he embraced kind of the penalty for that. Spent decades in prison, was finally released after um, paying his debt in that way, wrote a book to kind of describe, you know, how those things happened as a warning to others, not to kind of get into moral decline as a society and so forth. Uh, and he was interviewed one time on one of the morning shows on an on a American Network channel, uh, and he talked about how this book was his attempt to atone for his sins. And the, the host of the show was asking him, you know, do you think that your book has accomplished that? Do you think you've been able to make up for this these wicked deeds that he had orchestrated and carried out uh, during World War II? And he said, No. There's nothing that could atone for the things that I did. He thought his sin was too great, even for the lavish grace of Jesus. There's another story of a man named Yehiel Diner, who was a Jewish man who had been uh, in a concentration camp during World War II, and he was called to witness during uh, these same trials in Nuremberg, and he was called to witness particularly on a day when Adolf Eichmann, who was kind of the grand architect of, of much of the cruelty of the Nazis, uh, he was called to witness on the day when Adolf Eichmann was taking the stand, and the story is told that uh, diner walked into the courtroom, saw Eichmann at a distance. He was on the stand. He was kind of behind thick plastic uh, kind of verse, thick glass on the stand there. And he said, it's told that when he walked into the courtroom and saw Adolf Eichmann at the front of the courtroom, that he passed out. He fainted right there on the floor. And people came rushing to his side, picking him up, you know, making sure he was okay. And they asked him later, said, why did you faint? Were you overcome with kind of fear and terror at finally facing this man who had orchestrated all these horrible things that you were um, a victim of? And he said, no, 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 that's, that's not why I fainted. So said, when I walked into the courtroom and saw him, I realized he is a man just like I am. He had an understanding of the depth of human nature so that he didn't put a distinction between himself and the man on, uh, on the stand, he realized The same problem in that man that resulted in all these horrible evils, that same problem is in me. If you realize that about yourself, if you accept what the Bible says about your own heart, the depth of depravity that we all experience, uh, then when you experience forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Christ, then you'll be able to appreciate what Paul says, that this is a forgiveness that is according to the riches of grace lavished on you. Then then you'll be like the woman in Luke 7 that many of us studied a couple weeks ago in, in college Bible study, who came into the home of Simon the Pharisee and approached Jesus and with no sense of shame wept over the feet of Jesus washing the feet of Jesus with her hair, worshiping Jesus. And Jesus says, this woman loved much because she was forgiven much. She understood her own sin and the lavish riches of God's grace to her in Jesus. She got it. She got it. Paul got it. Do we get it? Do we understand how rich God's grace is to us in Christ if we do, then we will join Paul in praising him for the, praising God for the redemption that he has given us in Christ. But not only that, Paul doesn't just highlight the grace of God in our redemption. He highlights the grace of God in Revelation, the plan that God has revealed to us. Notice the connection between verses 8 and 9. He lavished grace upon us, forgiving our sins, giving Jesus as our Redeemer... But he also lavished grace upon us in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. This is language about revelation, God revealing his plan to us. When we hear the word mystery, don't think Scooby-Doo uh, mystery. If I don't know, is that a, does that work anymore? Does anybody younger kids know what Scooby-Doo is? Uh, that was our, that was my cartoon growing up. Scooby-Doo was all they were always solving mysteries, right? And the people would get away with it if it weren't for. Scooby-Doo and his, the mystery uh, van and so forth. Anyway, sorry. When you hear mystery, don't think this is a riddle to be solved. That that, that's not that kind of mystery. When the Bible talks about mystery, this kind of mystery, what it's saying is it's God's plan that you can only know if he reveals it to you. Kind of like Daniel in, uh, when he was part of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he wanted Daniel to interpret it. And Daniel said, uh, the interpretation only belongs to God who reveals mysteries. So the mystery is God's plan, God's, God's uh, plan of redemption, something he has to reveal in order for us to understand and to know it. Um, and so it's a gift of grace that God has revealed his plan to us. That he's told us what he's up to. What, what is it that he is up to? Uh, Notice verses 9 and 10 here. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is. To unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God gives us grace in revealing to us not only our individual redemption in Christ, which we receive through faith the forgiveness of our trespasses, but also in revealing to us this bigger plan. Not only are we forgiven, not only are we restored through the work of Christ, not only are we purchased from slavery to sin and brought into fellowship with God, but the world itself one day will be fully restored by this same gift of grace in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he describes it as... Uh, plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven, or things on earth. This word that he uses here for unite is translated in different ways. It's kind of a unique word. Um, And so depending on what Bible translation you have, it's going to be different. It might might say summing up of all things, uh, bringing together all things in Christ, uniting all things, or bringing all things under the head of Christ. Uh, All those are good translations. The idea is this. Something has been divided, there's a falling apart, there's a disillusion of things in the world because of sin, and it's the work of Jesus to bring those things back into harmony, back into order. Uh, The word is often used for um, kind of rhetoric, so if somebody is summing up things in a speech, This is the word that was used to describe that. So they've said a lot of things, and they're going to bring it all together, bring order to it. And and, and Paul kind of takes this word and he he transforms it and uses it to describe the work of Christ, this cosmic ultimate redemption that Jesus will bring one day, that everything that sin has divided and corrupted and damaged, Jesus will put in its proper place at the end of days. Now think about it this way sin has brought into our lives and the world a a divisive power there's disorder there's disintegration things were whole things were together in the garden sin has caused that to unravel like pulling yarn from a knit sweater just it's all coming apart that's what sin has done it's brought death the ultimate disillusion. You experience this in all of life. In Genesis 3, God highlights several areas where we see sin's divisive, disintegrating impact at work. Everything is impacted. Relationship with God, once together, now divided. Relationship with one another, Adam and Eve, one flesh, and then all of a sudden, It's your fault. It's your fault. Pointing the finger, blame shifting. There, Our relationship to work. uh, God tells Adam, you're going to work really hard and you're not going to get out of your work what you put into it. It's going to be briars and thorns and and you're going to sweat just to eat. Uh, Your relationship to work has been impacted by sin. Your relationship to rest because your work doesn't produce In proportion to the amount that you put into it, you're tempted not to rest and rely upon God, but to think, I have to keep working in order to get what I need. And so your rest is impacted by sin. Marriage is impacted. There's now this hostility and tension between husband and wife as a result of sin rather than harmony there. Your relationship to children, your relationship to creation, your relationship to yourself. Am I missing anything? Sin has brought disorder and disintegration to the whole of life, your life and the world in which we live. And Paul is saying here that through the work of Jesus, his dying for sin as the second Adam, as the representative man, human for us, that his dying to sin on the cross, bearing the penalty of God's wrath fully satisfied in him and rising again from the dead to bring new creation in his resurrection that through the work of jesus for us he's bringing things back together under christ the disintegration is being brought together with integrity the the divisiveness is now being brought back into wholeness your relationship with god has been restored your relationship with others though hard are being restored Um, through the work of Christ, you know, it's interesting to me that even good things that we experience in this life are tainted and corrupted by by sin, and that Paul is is pointing out here that one day uh, there will come a time, through the work of Christ, that the good things will no longer be tainted by the bad things, that, that all sin and its effects will be done away with on that day. And the good news is that he's at work doing that now. He's at work doing it in you as, as you die to your sin daily, as you repent and ask for forgiveness and embrace the forgiveness that Christ has won for you in the gospel, as you walk Uh, in a new manner consistent with the good news of God's grace as as you seek to walk in obedience and humility before God and before one another he's bringing his kingdom he's renewing your heart as an individual he's he's uniting all things in you if if you will as kind of a microcosm for what he's going to do in the whole of creation one day he's doing that now in you as a foretaste of that great day when he will do it all uh, in creation. When every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, whether as a vanquished foe or as one who has been victorious in Christ, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even in eternity, the song will be praise to the Lamb who is worthy, who has ransomed, redeemed for himself, people from all over the world every tribe tongue and nation will be singing of the redemptive work of Jesus for all eternity but now he's doing that work in your life and that and that's the connection between these two things god is at work bringing this redemption he does it through individuals and he does it through the church that the church is the place the church is the people where this good news that Christ will unite all things under himself this good news of what Jesus has done and redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, his lavish grace. Is it work in you as a witness to the world that there's good news, that there's hope through what Christ has done on our behalf? That's why we need the revelation of it because we're part of the plan. We have a role to play in the plan that God is carrying out in Jesus. We conclude. Just think of a couple of points of application. Uh, if you're not yet a a Christian, uh, if you're not a believer, or a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to the point of confessing your sin and embracing Jesus as He's offered in the gospel, just pose this question to you from uh, a song by Andrew Peterson uh, called Is he, "Is he Worthy," which we, we've had we've had in worship. Anne and Mark sang that one time. It was beautiful they are probably saying it more than once, actually. Uh, but in the song, uh, the song asks this question, Do you feel the world is broken? And then it goes on to talk about how uh, Jesus the Messiah is coming to deal with the brokenness of our sin. Do you feel the world is broken? Uh, do you feel that you are broken? Do you feel your own brokenness? Uh, If you do, then there's good news that Jesus has come to deal with sin, the very root problem behind every other problem. Behind all of the brokenness and fractured nature of this world is the problem of sin, and Jesus has come to deal with it. He has come to redeem us, and he has done all things necessary for us. Do you feel that the world is broken? If you do, if you feel that you are broken, look to Jesus who will restore and redeem you. For Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, just a couple of questions of application for you. Uh, Corporately, the church on earth is the place, the front line of this reunifying effort of Jesus, this reunifying work of Christ in redemption. And so, uh, are we, as members of Christ's body, living in such a way that we're inviting others to take part? In the work of what Christ has already in, in the work of Jesus, are we inviting others to uh, receive the work that Christ has already done on our behalf? We're the front line of Christ's work on earth, announcing what He has accomplished and inviting others to believe it. And secondly, just individually, as you think about your own life, does your life reflect this heaven and earth unifying work of Jesus? Do you see the kingdom coming in your own life so that you're able to look at your own heart, your own life, and say with the tow truck driver, things are not the way they're supposed to be. But I know Jesus, and I know that he's at work restoring the things that have been broken by sin, restoring me day by day, renewing me in the inner man so that I am slowly but surely by his grace becoming what I ought to be in him until that day when he comes and fully redeems his people. Is it evident in your life that you have received and experienced the riches of God's grace lavished upon you in Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me?